Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets, up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Drops. We're doing more cleaning than ever before, but it's hard to find eco-friendly cleaning products that actually work. Check out Drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, Drops delivers powerful cleaning from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas to your door in low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. Sign up for auto shipments of Drops laundry pods and dishwasher pods to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel anytime. And use code FRIENDS to get 25% off your first order. That's DROPS with two Ps. Check out all their custom cleaning solutions for every need. Visit DROPS.com and enter FRIENDS to get 25% off your first order today. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And as someone with a few diagnoses, I really appreciate taking some designated time to talk about and hopefully destigmatize one of the most common disabilities around. But not all mental illnesses are destigmatized equally. I see a lot of conversations about anxiety and depression, about addiction, and about eating disorders, and those conversations are really important and we need to keep having them. I just want to add in a conversation about a diagnosis that people don't usually talk about unless it's in the news. Schizophrenia. Vince Granada's brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young adult. He resisted treatment, and Vince's family had trouble finding resources and support. His brother continued to decline, and eventually, in the midst of a paranoid delusion, he killed their mother. And that made the news. Vince has written a book about what the news didn't and couldn't cover, what a lot of us are afraid to look at, the quiet desperation that led up to the tragedy, and the healing that has come afterwards. His memoir is called Everything is Fine, and he is coming right up. I want to note this is a pretty emotional conversation, and it involves discussion of violence and of institutionalization. Everyone here will understand if you want to take a break, or maybe a few breaths before we get started. And if this is already hitting too close to home and you want to talk to someone right now, I want to suggest NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. They're a resource for those facing mental illness and for family members of those facing mental illness. Their helpline is 800-950-6264. You can also text NAMI, that's N-A-M-I, to 741-741 for 24-7 confidential free crisis counseling. Conversation with Vince Granada, and we'll be right back. Vince, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I was trying to come up with a great first question, and I was also trying to think of a way to like 
summarize your story and do it some emotional justice and, and with respect. And I realized, I don't know if I can do that. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, how would you set up your story? Well, I, I appreciate your, your sensitivity to the, the difficulty of, of summarizing um, this particular story. And I think that that difficulty is one of the reasons why writing a full book about my family story was something that felt necessary. Um, so the, the way I describe my family and, and what happened in my family is I, I typically start with talking about my siblings. I have three younger siblings. They, uh, they happen to be triplets. They're four and a half years younger than me. Uh, and Tim, who the book that I wrote is, is mostly about, um, he became uh, fairly sick when he was 19. Uh, he had just started college and he was at that point falling into what we sort of understood was a deep depression. Um, he was feeling feelings of hopelessness that eventually um, materialized into suicidal ideation and some fairly specific uh, plans to end his life and die by suicide. At this point, uh, my family not having much experience or really any experience uh, with mental illness sort of shuffled to try to uh, get him the help that he needed. And for a period of years that followed, Tim would be sort of in and out of periodic treatment while his illness uh, accelerated in, in ways that went beyond the initial depression that we, we recognized when he was 19. During that time, he started to experience what some clinicians thought could be psychotic uh, delusions, disordered thinking, hallucinations, things of that nature. And when he was a senior in college, um, he had been in and out of school during this period. Uh, he reached a pretty acute breaking point. And at that stage, uh, he told our mother uh, that he, and in his words, planned to blow his brains out in his college library. Um, and that led to my mother driving the four hours to his college campus to pick him up. And almost miraculously, he agreed to go with her. Um, he had been very resistant. Um, there were a number of challenges that got in the way of him receiving care. But he agreed to go with her. Um, and they traveled back to our hometown uh, where Tim was admitted to the ER uh, against his will. He, upon arriving at the ER, uh, decided that he didn't want to be in a hospital. And he became quite agitated. Uh, and it was during that, that time that he told the the staff at the ER, that our mother was lying uh, to admit him to the hospital and that if she left him there, uh, he would he would kill her. So what followed was a, a two-week period of, of um, involuntary hospitalization in which uh, the illness that, that was then determined to be schizophrenia uh, began to get some very beginning treatment. Uh, for the first time, Tim was put on antipsychotics and some of the symptoms of his illness started to quiet a bit. Um, and after two weeks, sort of the length of time that uh, legally it was permissible to hold him against his will, uh, he was released. And at that point, the only place for him to go was home uh, to my mother's care. And for a period of months, um, during which he flushed his pills down the toilet, refused to attend outpatient treatment, um, he sort of festered behind his bedroom door, uh, his world becoming increasingly unrecognizable to him uh, and to all of us. Um, we didn't know how to speak to him. We didn't know what he needed. Um, and after several months of deteriorating delusions and hallucinations that started to bend towards our mother, one day when they were alone at home, uh, he attacked her and killed her. 
And that's the story. That's the experience that um, I've been grappling with for, for almost seven years now. Um, and that is what I write about in my book. It's trauma, you know. But one of the points you make in the book is that it was sort of a turning point for you or a revelation for you that you did need to be able to tell this story to other people, to people that didn't already know you. Why was that important? It absolutely became something that that I think wasn't just important. It was something that I had to do to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in the years before my mom died, was not knowledgeable about what was happening with my brother, knew very little, next to nothing, about schizophrenia, about the numerous, you know, hindrances to receiving mental health care, all of the things that prevented him from getting the treatment he needed. Um, And I was also far from my family. I wasn't living at home. I was several hours away. And I didn't fully appreciate what my mother in particular, but other members of my family as well, was going through with Tim on a daily basis. Um, so in the aftermath of what happened, um, as, as shocking and devastating as it was, initially the only way I tried to cope was by avoiding thinking about the really difficult realities that led to my mother's death. And for about a year, I, I sort of tried to you know white knuckle my way through grieving, you know, returning to work, returning to my same routines, but the pain would sort of seep out in all these different ways. And it wasn't until about a year afterwards, I decided to, to try writing, to try sort of exploring my family's story and, and seeing if I could understand some of these pieces that seemed so far beyond my understanding that I started to really grapple with what had actually happened and all that I didn't know and all that I was unable to, to help with. You kind of use a, a few different metaphors um, or, or uh, descriptions of, of what the process was like for you to get beyond this inability to talk about it and feel it and finally get to a place where you could. And one thread that I picked up in the, in the book was that in some ways your journey <laughs> consists a little bit of trying to blame people and then realizing you can't blame them. There's like, it's like a, it's a litany of people that Absolutely. you really want to be able to blame. <laughs> And then you kind of have to talk yourself out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's all kinds of people from your mother blaming her to even the photographer at your at your mother's funeral where there's this sort of what seems like on first glance, like a gross, you know, invasion of privacy. You see she's taking your picture and it's very tragic. And then you have this thought, not her fault. Talk a little bit about this journey to, to, to blame and then finding you can't. Absolutely. I, I spent a long time um, pointing fingers wherever it seemed um, easy, um, you know, at someone like that photographer who, who was really just doing her job as, as, you know, unfortunate as that job was in that moment. For a long time, I, I looked at uh, the various people who treated Tim. Um, I looked at the people who took care of him in the hospital uh, about a year after my mother died when I was just starting to think about writing. I, I got a hold of his his hospital records, um, and he, you know, he'd only been there about two weeks, but still hundreds of pages. And I went through the first time I read them, and I was just underlining names and circling places where I felt someone had made a mistake, and just cursing in the margins. And 
just unbelievably angry at really the only people aside from my mother who, who tried to care for Tim. And it just, it left me feeling so exhausted that mm-hmm. the fact that I was trying to find these places for my anger to land when I couldn't reflect at all on where I had been when my brother was most needing me, most needing support. And I couldn't see the forces that were actually at play in this tragedy. And it just felt so much easier to point other ways. And you did go through a period where you thought a little bit about blaming yourself and blaming your mother as well for this. And that must have felt really shitty. (laughs) Yes. But I also understand the impulse. Like you're just trying to make sense of it. What, what was that like? It's still extremely hard to, to consider, you know, ways my mom might not have gotten Tim the support he needed. And it is so beyond, you know, what I, what I could possibly, you know, in terms of putting blame, I would never, ever put blame on her. I would never consider that, you know, she, she failed in any way, except for perhaps loving her son so much that she might have not seen the extent of the danger. I think if there was any failing, it was a failure Mm -hmm. of, of too much love. And I think in the process of, of sort of going back and trying to write this story, I discovered a lot about what my mother had tried to do to help Tim. I, I can remember I was about a year and a half after she died, I was back at home um, where my father still lives and was going through some of her things, sort of cleaning out some of her stuff. And I was standing on, the, on her side of, of the bed and I, I stubbed my toe on something under her bed and I knelt down to see what was there. And there were several stacks of books hidden uh, under her bed. And when I knelt down to, to sort of pull them out and look at them, I, I realized they were all books about psychotic illness, about schizophrenia, about um, helping a loved one find treatment, accept treatment. And she had just this, this arsenal of books that, that she was consulting um, to try to help Tim. And I, I had not read a single book about schizophrenia at that point. Um, mm. So she went to extreme lengths to try to figure this thing out. But what do you think would have made the biggest difference or what might make, let's forward look a little here, what might make the biggest difference for another family if, if, if you could offer that bit of experience? You know, I appreciate you asking that question. Uh, going back to the one time where Tim really received uh, consistent uh, care during his two-week hospitalization. Um, at that point, two weeks was really the the extent of uh, the sort of uh, involuntary hospitalization. Um, there's in Connecticut, and this is the case in many many states. Um, they have what's called a physician's emergency certificate, which essentially says for for 15 days. Um, a patient can be held against their will if they're deemed to be dangerous to themselves or others. The language shifts a little bit by state, but it's something along those lines. And that, as sort of a continuum of care, creates the situation where we treat people in acute psychiatric distress like they have a gunshot wound. We treat what are chronic illnesses like they are, you know, acute wounds that can be stitched up and, you know, patched together. And it's a basic misunderstanding of what these illnesses can do to people who suffer with them. The one chance we had to get Tim into consistent care before our mother died was that hospitalization. For a number of reasons, he wasn't going to 
come to take that care voluntarily. There are elements of his illness that, that prevented him, that you know, neurologically blocked him in a way from understanding that he was ill. So when that hospital care was truncated, and there are a variety of other factors, a, a you know, huge shortage of psychiatric beds, um, insurance denials for inpatient psychiatric stays, a whole laundry list of things that many other people have written lots of excellent books about too. Because we couldn't get him the care he needed over a long period of time in the hospital, he didn't have the best chance to, to battle what was taking over his mind. Despite the fact that this is a book about a terrible tragedy and about a person that did become violent, you feel strongly about destigmatizing all of this as a subject and as a way to talk about severe mental illness. And I have to say, like, one reason I, I we've talked about this on the show before, but that whole um, treating mental illness like a gunshot wound idea, we really should shift to treating mental illness like your heart. You know, like no one's embarrassed to go in for a heart checkup, right? Um, and that should maybe apply even to severe mental illness. What do you want to contextualize about severe and mental illness here? No, it absolutely should apply to severe mental illness. Um, and I appreciate what you're saying about stigma. And I, I think a, a lot of stigma that that sort of has, has arisen around serious mental illness intensifies when a story like my brother's is only reported in a headline. Um, when people see a news article that, you know, just uses the word schizophrenia and matricide, the link that they're making between those two isn't nuanced. It's not a complex understanding of what was actually happening with my brother and all the things that he faced. So one of the reasons why I think writing a book like this one can help destigmatize, just destigmatize the uh, illness um, is that by explaining this long journey that Tim was on and all of the challenges that prevented him from getting the help he needed, we can understand that while it's extremely rare, and I really want to stress that it's extremely rare um, for someone with illness like Tim's to become violent, very rare. It's also not impossible if we let very serious illnesses go to their sort of most serious extremes, mm -hmm. um, if we let them go untreated for long periods of time. So like when I think about treating a disease like Tim's disease, it's in some ways, you know, it's, it's if not a lifelong or in many cases, it is a lifelong sort of focus. It is something that has to be paid attention to um, for periods of time in a way that is befitting a chronic illness, in a way that, as, as you say, you know, we would go in to have our hearts taken care of. And I think, I mean, to speak about Tim now, um, he has received treatment for a very long period of time now, or a number of years, four, four plus years. And to see him now, to speak to him now, um, Actually, I just spoke to him hours ago. He he called me because it happens to be my birthday. Um, oh, well, and uh, I was going to ask when the last time you spoke to him was, and yeah, no, there it was you are. not even two hours ago. Um, mm -hmm. And to speak to him now, I mean, and in, in the years past as well, um, to hear him as a thoughtful, caring brother, this sort of treatment has worked for him. It's worked quite well, and. While I'm obviously very encouraged and incredibly happy that that he's been able to have this experience with his treatment, it, it also makes this story so much more gutting um, mm -hmm. because this this absolutely did not have to happen. To stay on destigmatizing, 
you point this out in the book, and I want to make sure that we point it out here, which is, as you said, the vast majority of people with severe mental illness are not violent. And of those that are, they are far more likely to hurt themselves uh, than to hurt someone else. I wanted to ask about how that fact kind of lands with you. So for many years, and, and really almost up until the moment my mother died, our greatest fear with Tim was, was death by suicide or self-harm. That had been uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the ways that his hallucinations and delusions would um, sort of materialize would be in, in suicidal ideation, suicidal language. So when I think about writing about an illness like schizophrenia, I, I do want to make sure that it's incredibly clear that many, many, many more people who, who have to deal with this disease are at risk of self-harm or death by suicide than, than violence towards others. At the same time, while, and I think this, this is one of you know, the greatest difficulties I had writing this story, um, this story exists because of an act of violence that someone with a psychotic illness uh, committed while they were under um, in an incredibly strident psychotic episode. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a huge danger, as you say, to sensationalize this sort of story. And often the way that it gets reported, um, you know, in media is sort of necessarily sensationalized because you just don't have enough space to really discuss the real issues at play. And so what I wanted to be very careful about, and and one of the reasons I structured the book as I structured it, is I open with, with the details of of what happened um, Mm -hmm. in my family, with my brother, with my mother. And I tell that part of the story first to make it very clear that while this tragedy is sort of what is inciting the book, the book is not about a violent act that someone committed. It's about how we arrived there. It's about how we lived afterwards. And most importantly, it's about showing the human being who was taken over by this illness and how my brother, who before he was ill, was a caring, loving brother, and now in treatment is, you know, as someone we could we could talk to right now, and he would be a considerate, thoughtful guy. How an illness like schizophrenia, if left to go unchecked, can have this horrible, transformative experience on a human um, like my brother. And as you say, it's it's the illness; it's not the person. We're going to have to jump in for some ads. We'll be right back. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. We're all trying to eat better, but a healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring, and it doesn't have to be mature. Magic Spoon has all the amazing flavors of the cereals you loved as a kid, but without all the bad stuff. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving, and only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And exciting news, Magic Spoon has released a new delicious flavor, birthday cake. Birthday cake Magic Spoon will be available in a special five-pack for a limited time only, so get it while you can. You can also build your own box. Available flavors to build with are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. If you're listening from Canada, Magic Spoon now ships there as well. My pro tip is to mix up your Magic Spoon cereals. Cocoa and peanut butter is my fave, but I suspect that birthday cake would go great with frosted if you like frosting and I like frosting. 
So go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab the new limited edition birthday cake or a custom bundle of cereal to try it today. And be sure to use promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is now good anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5. And thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring for spring? What type of role are you hiring for? Maybe you need to hire someone to wear many hats, which can be challenging. Or you might have a simple position to fill, but it's taking forever to find someone who's a great fit for your company. That's where ZipRecruiter comes in. ZipRecruiter can help you find qualified candidates fast, and you can try it now for free at ZipRecruiter.com friends. Whether you need to hire a civil engineer in New York, a pediatric nurse in Nebraska, an attorney in Colorado, or even a mascot in Missouri, ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. From accountant to zoologist and everything in between, ZipRecruiter makes hiring easier. And right now, you can try it for free at the link that only our listeners get. ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends today to try ZipRecruiter, we get credit for sending you. So once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends, F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. We were going through the list of people that you tried to blame and couldn't. Yes, we were. Tim is on that list. How did you come to understand his responsibility in this? Like you said, we, you just said, and we, I agree, it's the person gets sick, right? They don't have control over it. However, this happened. And part of the process has to be trying to assign blame. I think part of the reason I looked for blame other places in terms of, you know, the people who tried to care for him or, you know, places innocuous as that, that newspaper photographer is that it was so difficult for me to think about Tim's culpability. And I even hesitate to use that word because I think it's a little more complicated than that. But for a long time... 
I, re- I really resisted even thinking about sort of what role his agency may have played in what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my conversations with him from the very beginning, from when I first visited him, um, you know, several months after my mother died, the way I would phrase sort of this, this to him would be to say, I don't hold you responsible. Mm. Right? I don't think you were responsible for what happened. And I think that's a little bit different than sort of saying, you know, you, you had no role in this. In my mind, the, the real culprit here is the untreated illness and sort of the failure that falls on, you know, really all of us for, for being in a, a situation where these types of illnesses don't get the attention and care that they, they need. But at the same time, even if I didn't want to think about Tim's role, it was something that I think was working on me in ways sometimes that were, were unconscious. I, I would have these terrible nightmares about him. Um, and I would see him in this sort of monstrous way that I, I really did not want to see him. I think the way that I was able to eventually get to a place where I could really, you know, fully believe it when I said, I don't hold you responsible was by visiting him, you know, as often as I could and having conversations with him that began to show me that, that he wasn't this monster. Of course he wasn't this monster, but at the same time, there was that potential um, that the illness brought with it, that it was such a disruptor of worlds that it really overthrew this person that I thought I knew very well. So I think, you know, as, as we've stayed in touch over the, the years since, I very much, you know, still firmly believe he, he should not be held sort of responsible for what happened. But telling him that doesn't necessarily help him because I know that he, what he deals with, what he feels in terms of his own guilt, it far exceeds anything that I could, you know, fully assuage or fully take away. Mm. So knowing that he carries that with him is, is both painful for me, but I think unavoidable in, in sort of our conversations. One of the things we've talked about this season in terms of forgiveness is that self-forgiveness is probably the hardest thing to do of any kind of forgiveness. And obviously that's something that Tim is going to have to struggle with or not get to. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't get to that. But this is a season about forgiveness and reconciliation. And in reading your book, I did have the thought that this is much more reconciliation than forgiveness. In part, because of what we've been talking about throughout this conversation, which is that there's not any one person to blame. How can you forgive if there's not a person to blame? So how do you see that journey? Is that, does that sound right with you? No, it it absolutely does. Um, I think reconciliation is something that makes more sense when I think about um, rebuilding a relationship, because I think a lot of what Tim and I have tried to do together over the years is rebuild a relationship um, when it it seemed it would be almost impossible after what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think part of, you know, staying in touch and part of me, you know, trying to visit when I can, as difficult as that, that can be sometimes is sort of learning to, to trust each other and, me in particular, as Tim's gotten sort of, you know, more stable on medication to really listen to him when he starts to grapple with, with just the immense difficulty of, of, of what's happened of what he's living with. 
and I've, I, from the moment I started writing, I, I told him I was writing this book and I wanted him to be aware of it. And I wanted him, if not, you know, a direct participant in the writing to at least know that it was important to me to try to understand this story that, that we share, that our family shares. And early on, I think he, he didn't quite understand sort of the process. And he would say things to me like, you know, I, I, I you can write whatever you want to write, but I, I just don't want you to make me look any worse than I already look, mm. is what he would say um, quite often. And I would try to, you know, tell him, hey, you know, that's not, that's not my aim here. Um, but I mean, even that's too simple of an answer because in order to tell the story, I had to explain what happened and it's impossible to read what happened and not be taken aback, um, by sort of the shocking nature of what happened to my family, uh, with him. So eventually when, you know, when he read the, the full version of the book and when we talked about it, what I think he came to believe and what I hope is true is that the picture of him in the book shows sort of a full, a full human being. It shows the person that I'm talking to, um, you know, when, when we visit her or when he calls. And I think him understanding and being supportive of that story, of me telling that story and trusting me to tell that story is, is definitely part of this sort of process of us reconciling. I think his support of the book is... It's really, it's a, it's a selfless act of love, I think, for him, of all people, to, to be supportive of me doing this. It's something that I can't fully describe. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that he both understands that it meant something to me in my healing, but also that it's something that might help him someday. Um, it was incredibly important to both of us, I think. I was going to ask... You mentioned the full picture of Tim. What do you want people to know about him besides the most horrible fact that is going to be at the center of most people's view? How can you decenter that? Thank you. Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, that's incredibly important to me. I would describe Tim as, as one of the most thoughtful, one of the most sort of intellectually rigorous people I've ever met. And by intellectually rigorous, I, I mean, not only does he read, you know, exotic, he reads everything he can get his hands on, but he's a patient thinker. We, I'm trying to think of a conversation we had recently that might illustrate this. Um, he's taken to playing chess uh, quite often um, where he's currently uh, living. And when I say taken to playing chess, I, I don't mean sort of, you know, casually with some of the other people who are, who are on this unit with him. I mean, he's finding every available book on chess, every, you know, strategical guide out there. And he's really dissecting sort of the, the philosophy behind chess moves. And, and he approaches his interest that way. Um, he was a philosophy major in college and, and that became more complicated when he was ill. But to this day, when I talk to him, you know, he'll talk about philosophy he's read. He'll talk about sort of his theories of, of good and evil. He'll talk about his, his theories of spirituality. Um, and the way that he listens to me, I mean, is obviously quite different than when he was most ill, but he listens in a way that I think is, is rare. Um, he listens to, to really try to understand 
um, you know, where I'm coming from and to try to understand, you know, the, the challenges I, I face and having certain conversations with him. Mm-hmm. So while, as you say, it would be easy to see this book and then just to kind of see the, the shocking nature of what he did, the person he is now and the person that he could have been this whole time um, is a much gentler, much more thoughtful, much more considerate human being. And one more set of ads. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Ritual. From Ritual, the multivitamin company you know and trust. Protein powders can feel intimidating, and the ingredient list impossible to parse. But the truth is, deep down, as in at the cellular level, we all need protein, and it's about more than just muscles. So the Ritual team reimagined protein supplements from the ground up and inside out, from how they're made to who they're made for and why they're needed. The result is a delicious plant-based protein in three premium formulations for distinct life stages and unique nutrient needs, all made with the same high-standard approach and commitment to traceability that Ritual is known for, whether you're doing reps or going for dog walks. Introducing Essential Protein, here to shake things up. Now, Ritual is a big part of my life. Their products are literally transparent as well as sustainable and traceable. The packaging is thoughtful, and Ritual makes health feel like self-care. It makes it a pleasure to do the good things that my body needs. And now they have Essential Protein. It comes in a delicious handcrafted vanilla flavor made from direct from farmer vanilla bean extract sustainably harvested in Madagascar. No added sugars or sugar alcohols, and like all the Ritual products, Essential Protein is soy-free, gluten-free, and formulated with non-GMO ingredients. So, why not shake up your Ritual? To make trying something new less scary, Ritual has a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. Plus, my listeners will get 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash friends to add essential protein today. That's ritual.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Best Fiends. Now, how good a friend is my best friend? She stood up for me when my life fell apart. She gave one of the best speeches I've ever heard, period, at my wedding. And when I'm down, she will quote the dinner party episode of The Office to me until I can't bear but to feel better. Your closest friends are always there for you when you need them. Good times, bad times, in between times, they've got you. Sort of like how Best Fiends always has a new puzzle to keep your brain feeling refreshingly challenged. At a time when everything feels the same, year two of a -a once-in-a-lifetime crisis, science shows you have to keep your brain engaged. It's a use-it-or-lose-it situation, and Best Fiends will stretch your brain like a Pilates class. The best thing about it, it's engaging without triggering any thoughts about the outside world. It's not a word game or a strategy game in the real world, and it's not violent unless you count slugs, but they're cartoon slugs. Best Fiends has literally thousands of levels to solve. You will never get bored. With Best Fiends, there's always something new to play, and there are adorable, collectible characters. Just keep coming. It's hard to choose your favorite. So if you're itching to find a game that's got your back, specifically the part of your back that's always itching for a puzzle to solve, you got to try Best Fiends. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So there are some other characters in this book besides you and Tim. Your two other siblings and your father, of course. And I want to talk about them, especially 
There's a one line, it felt like a hard one realization in your book that I wanted you to expand on if you can. Families in pain don't simply coalesce. I think we do have a hopeful idea that that's what happens in a stressful situation and a tragedy is that we come together. But that isn't what you experienced. Absolutely. Um, and I think that being said, I mean, I, I have incredibly supportive family members and, and I love them all incredibly. And I am sometimes not deserving of the love they give me. I, I know that for sure, um, especially in some of the difficult moments that, that the book describes. But one of the real challenges of writing a book like this one is that while I obviously have a big personal stake in what happened, so do three other people. Three people who have their own relationships with Tim, who had their own relationships with our mother, who have their own relationships with me. And to not try to address that element of the story, um, especially when um, someone like my brother, Chris, who is Tim's triplet brother, their their bond was, was beyond a best friendship. It was closer than any bond I've ever seen. To not try to at least honor that and say that there are people in my family whose pain exceeded mine, to not try to address that would be hugely wrong. Um, and in the aftermath of, of, of what happened to my family, you know, while we were, you know, we always had each other's back and we were there to support each other, there were always going to be moments when we saw things differently or we had a different response to, to sort of grieving or we, we grieved in, in, in ways that, that looked unrecognizable to each other. And I think in those moments, sometimes it was, it was difficult to communicate. And I think most of that lies with me because I think in, in the process of that first year and in the ways I sort of avoided trying to think about sort of the, the details of my mother's death and the complex feelings I was feeling, I wasn't as transparent with what I was struggling with as, as my siblings in particular. And I think, mm. you know, that hurt them. I think there were ways, especially around my mother's death, because I wasn't nearly as close to home as they were. I was quite far away. That me being distant, not being able to, to help, um, I think that hurt them too. And, you know, they were right, absolutely right to feel, to sort of feel that that, that complicated our, our sort of understandings of the story. I want to offer a little bit of grace because I actually think that your um, point is a helpful one to anyone, to any family, which is that it's just, it's going to be work to come together again. That this idea that we may have, that families, we stick together in times of crisis, that's wonderful. And sometimes it happens that way. But that a lot of times it's not the natural. It's not like the thing that just automatically happens after all of you are in pain. That you had to work at it. And that's, that's okay. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's not a linear, not a linear process. Um, it's not, you know, I think it, it can be easy to think about as sort of like a binary, you know, like a family mm -hmm. is broken and then one day a family is healed. Um, but there are so many intermediate phases. And, and I think too, with, with having written a book about sort of, you know, my, my whole family story, because the book is complete, because it's finished, because it you know has a back cover and a final page, it can be easy to look at that and say, oh, that is a complete experience. And one thing I hope 
in reading the book is, is that, well, obviously a lot of my thoughts and a lot of the things I struggled with in the year after my mother's death, I, I did get a better handle on, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that, that, you know, I'll be working on for, for many, many years, if not the rest of my life. Um, and that's, that's okay. That's the reality uh, of the situation for sure. I wanted to talk to you about the very end of the book because it ends with a story about a game your mom invented uh, called Getting Lost. Yeah. So many books end with finding something and you chose to end your book with Getting Lost. Why is that? So I think as, as an ending, this story, I mean, it, the story doesn't necessarily have a distinct ending in the sense that my relationship with my brother is obviously ongoing and the memories I have of my mother are also ongoing in a different way. It's not like I have a, a sort of a final memory that's sort of a capstone on my understanding of her. Um, absolutely not. But that particular memory of us playing this game where, where the goal was to get lost. And it was a game we played when my siblings were very young and, and my mother was worried that, you know, all her time was spent with them. And then I was feeling somehow less loved. And when I remember that game and I remember thinking about how delighted I was to be lost with her to, you know, turn randomly until we found ourselves in a place that at least, you know, I, as a young child thought was unrecognizable there was a lot of comfort in that, in that moment. Cause I knew that she was there with me. And I think one of the hardest parts of navigating her death and everything that's happened to most of my family is that she hasn't been here to help me figure this stuff out. Cause she was probably the only person that could have helped my grieving. Um, and she was the person that we were grieving. So in closing the book with that memory, I'm trying to demonstrate, I think, what, what I do when I try to find some peace in this story is I, I try to think of her and think of the time that she spent with me and how even when we were playing this game to get lost, it still felt like it was going to be okay because she was right there. I know that interview was a lot. Again, I will direct you to NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. For those facing mental illness and their loved ones, you can call 800-950-6264. That's 800-950-6264. Or text NAMI, N-A-M-I, to 741-741. We're going to switch tempos now, though we're going to stay in the realm of mental health. Because now, I think is a great time for some virtual self-care in the form of the latest installment of our new series with adorables like these. This is where we go behind the scenes at Crooked Media and with our guests to learn about their relationships with their animal companions. This week, I talked to Leo Duran. He is the senior producer for Crooked Media's daily news podcast, What a Day. His adorable is Penny a very cute tuxedo kitty with bright green eyes and a lot of poise and dignity. You will find pictures of her on all the obvious social media outlets, including my Twitter, which is at Anna Marie Cox. Leo and Penny. How long have you been companions and where did you get your adorable? So Penny is 17 years old. 
I got her as a birthday present to myself on 2000, in 2005. And I kept on going to the Humane Society near where I live. This is Dane County in Wisconsin. And I just kept it going back over and over and over again. It felt like I was doing like all these Tinder dates in a way, like waiting for the right match. Uh, I got sold on her because when the person dropped her into my lap, he let me hold her like a baby and she was so calm. And I was like, this is the one. She's so cute and cuddly. She's gorgeous. So her name is Penny. It's not a particularly interesting story in that I originally was looking for a male cat. I don't know why, because I thought it would be funny to call the male cat Peter, like one of those generic, normal, like regular Joe names, because I always thought that's funny. But when I met her, I was like, you know what? Gender does not matter. She is so cute. So Penny was close enough to Peter. Gender doesn't matter. She's cute. It's not the gender. It's the person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, She's a cat. We believe that all animals are emotional support animals. How has your adorable supported you? Well, I can say, especially during this pandemic, my God, I needed some companionship. And the weirdest thing is that, like, she's become even more bonded to me now that I'm at home all the time. Because, like, she is, she's old by numerics, but not by how she acts because she has just wanted to play so much more, become so much more active. She like, it's usually like once every three hours that she wants to play. And it's just as a friend, like I talk about her enough that people always want to meet her. And I have held two birthday parties for her (laughs) with a large number of people. One of my friends said like, Leo, you had more people at your cat's birthday party than I had at my own. We're talking like 25, 30 people in my apartment. She hid the entire time. And I recognized like, yeah, this is just kind of more about her than for her. She really did not like the big crowd. But I mean, it, it's just kind of nice. Like, even though she doesn't really interact with other people like she does me, at least uh, I talk her up enough that people want to meet her. Well, the next question you may have already answered, but what's the most you've gone out of your way for your adorable or the biggest way you spoil them? Okay, so one, yes, the birthday parties is one thing. This is going to sound a little nuts. I'm a little, I'm always reluctant when I talk about this. There was a long period of time where I used to make her own food. I somehow got suckered into the raw cat food movement. So I tried some pre-made stuff before. Uh, For people who don't know, this is like, they say that raw cat food as opposed to cooked cat food is supposed to be biologically more similar to what they'd get in the wild. I was living in hippie dippy Madison at the time. And I was like, I might as well try it. Let's see what happens. She seemed fine with it. And then I'm enough of a cook where I just thought, you know what? I bet I can make this for cheaper at home. (laughs) What cause would your adorable support? She would most definitely support any cause that helps all animals, no matter what. Like dogs, she gets along with dogs very well. If I had a bigger apartment, I would most definitely have a dog. But I think she would be very happy to see other animals just in general have a very happy life. I mean, she is a very chill cat around any other animal. I've rarely ever seen her hiss at anything, period. So I think if, the, yeah, if there's any big cause, it's either that or, as I do with every single one of my stickers, voting. Because I always put them on her head right afterwards. So uh, can you do her voice? Oh, God. Does she <laughs> have a voice? I 
I do. Can I not? I always hate it when somebody has pointed this out to me that I have a cat voice and I do have a voice around her. And I'm like, I don't want to dive deeper into this idea that I'm single. (laughs) (laughs) It's just saying that actually, I I don't give her a voice. I don't like pretend as if she's speaking. They're like, hey, dude, what's up? How's your day? Do nothing as usual. Cool. Yeah. I call her my pal than my pet most than mostly than anything. Because she's my pal or my buddy. Oh, hi. There's her voice. Hi there. Well, thank you so much. Um, This was delightful. And that is it for the show. With Friends Like These is a production of Crooked Media. Our senior producer is Allison Herrera, and our new producer, Jordan Waller, is also a producer for, and I will get it right this time, Pod Save the World. Izzy Margulies is our booker. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick would like you to know that Wally was robbed. But you can still follow his adventures on Instagram, at Whittles, at W-H-I-T-T-L-Z. Also, Thanks to Leo and to Penny, and especially Vince, whose book is entitled, again, Everything is Fine. If you or someone you love is facing a mental illness, you both deserve help. Please talk to someone about it. If you need help finding that someone, again, one option is NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, 800-950-6264. You can also text NAMI to 741-741-247. Please, take care of yourselves. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable and... Wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.